Welcome to the Wildflower Half Hour. I'm Isabel Hardman, and in this episode, we're going to be finding out about the joy of small overlooked plants, finding out how to create a proper wildflower hay meadow, and learning about our latest challenge to find a member of the Borage family. Wildflower Hour takes place every Sunday between 8 and 9 pm on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just find some wildflowers in bloom in Britain and Ireland. Take a photo of them, upload them to your favourite social networking site, and if you don't know what they are, other enthusiastic planty people will come rushing to help you out. And Wildflower Hour changes people. It's amazing how many say that once they started taking part, they realised how many wild plants were growing all around them, even in rather grey urban areas. One man who loves spotting overlooked plants is Peter Creed, and I asked him to tell me some of his favourites. So, Peter, a lot of the plants that we talk about on this podcast are, I have to be honest, the, the showy ones, the orchids or the snowdrops even that people instantly recognise and find very exciting. But you get excited by small overlooked plants. Why? Why? Uh, well, probably because they are small and overlooked. I mean, I really do like looking at all sorts of wildlife, large or small, and um you know, I can see kind of beauty in, in the tiniest things. This time of year, um, some of the very small plants are just starting to appear. I've noticed in the last week, there's a little plant that we get in Oxford along the streets, usually up against a brick wall and pavement. You At this time of year, you see these lovely little, what look like eight-petaled, pure white little stars of flowers called common whitlow grass, which is um, a member of the the cabbage family so it's got these but it's got these beautiful little white flowers and at this time of year they're probably only about i would think about four centimeters high and the flower is only i would think about five millimeters across you know so they're quite tiny but they absolutely glow when they just start to come out absolutely pure white and um they're actually just starting to appear now as i say and uh, they're worth looking out for other small ones that i really do like to go and look at and show people quite often there's a reserve not far from me called dry sandford pit which is an old quarry and the quarry floor has got lots of very tiny plants and one of the ones that comes out in late march early april is a forget-me-not and most forget-me-nots are fairly showy quite large But this one is called the early forget-me-not. And the plant itself is, again, probably only about five or six centimetres high at the most. And the flowers are absolutely bright blue, but they're only about three millimetres, two to three millimetres in diameter. So they're tiny little ping pricks of brilliant blue. And um, when they're coming out, you, it's it's amazing how you can still see them from, you know, when you're standing up, to see these tiny little things, you know, just coming out at you in, in uh, on, on the ground. And when you get on your hands and knees to have a look at them, there's lots of other small plants to get excited about as well. Some of them are, are white, but then there's, there's a lovely little um, pink flower you get there as well called um, Field Matter, which has got beautiful pale pink flowers four petaled flowers again probably only about two or three centimeters high at the most and uh, so it's a completely different world when you get down and um, and have a look at these things 
rather than the you know go for the big showy ones so that's just you know two or three examples straight away that that i like to look at and and people don't see them that often because they're they're tiny and they don't notice them because of their size but once they once they become aware of them then you focus in a different way and you see a lot more going on on the ground presumably it's quite handy in order to focus on them to carry a hand lens around with you so that once you've noticed the plant you can see its brilliant blue but tiny flowers yeah especially yeah I mean, it's always good to have a hand lens or just a magnifying glass it doesn't have to be a, a hand lens but a good magnifying glass will help as well and of course with, with smartphones um, you can photograph these tiny plants and then you know look at them later on your smartphone and you've got you know, you can get decent results and um, it's something else to, you know, look at in your leisure then. But, uh, yeah, hand lenses are very good. And, of course, then, you know, that leads me into other things then because when you're looking at these small plants, you see, you know, other small things that aren't necessarily flowering plants, but all the mosses that are around, again, open your eyes to a completely new world. And, um, you know, the... They might be tiny and green to most people. When you start looking at them, the different shades of green in mosses or or even going to reds or yellowy colours as well is, is quite amazing. And um, more people these days are uh, becoming more interested in, in in the more obscure things simply because we can now with the the internet there's loads of pictures online to look at and and people are just becoming much more interested i think so are there any particular habitats where you can find many tiny plants or is it the case that you just need to keep an eye out anywhere well there are some habitats that are are better for the smaller plants and uh, you know so if you went into a really lush wild flower meadow you know the the tiny plants would just be out competed by the more vigorous grasses and and showier plants, but heathland, for instance, or or very uh, dry sandy areas, um, or very short cropped limestone grassland, the escarpment edges of the Chilterns, for instance, might get rabbit grazed a lot. But a lot of the smaller plants do well on the escarpment because the the turf is so much shorter. So, you know, you get a whole range of small plants there. Other areas that are particularly good, I mean, there's a lot of small plants in in urban areas. So towns are quite good for a lot of the small plants up against, you know, in, in amongst paving slabs, for instance, you know, you get some tiny ones. And also, um, you know, up against the kind of walls, uh, small plants getting into the crevices. Um, so there's always plenty of places to, to search for these. Um, on the on the limestone walls as well in Oxfordshire, uh, again small plants can grow on those because there's not much earth in there in the walls themselves, just a little bit of soil. But there, it's usually enough just to get some of the smaller plants to to start appearing. And again, you've got you've got your Whitlow grasses would 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 grow um on on the limestone walls as well and another one which is just about to i think in in late april early may is something called the rue-leaved saxifrage which is a lovely little plant uh again only five or six millimeters high with the with the, the flower itself about five millimeters maximum in diameter lovely little five petaled thing with very cut leaves that 
go absolutely bright red um, as the plant um, matures. They start off green, but the leaves can go absolute scarlet, so really quite a quite a showy little thing. And they like very dry habitats. You certainly in, in Britain, you find a lot of those on the coast, but they grow uh, inland on very dry, hard habitats. So in Oxford, again, not far from where I live in Oxford as well, there's an old bridge over um, a lake, um, which was the, the lake was formed when they started to um, build the, the railway line through Oxford in the late 19th century. And it's now got an old metal bridge going over the lake so you can get over into another part of Oxford. And on this metal bridge, you've got the rue leaf saxifrage growing. So you know, a little bit of earth got tucked in um, along the edges of the bridge and then there's this plant growing there. Absolutely amazing, really. So it sounds like for you, the satisfaction of finding these small plants is a reward for keeping your eye out at, at all times. Now, if there's one mm. plant that people who want to get into small plants should look out for, in the same way as, you know, we drive, some people drive, travel hundreds of miles to go and see a particular orchid. If there's one plant that you think Wildflower Hour listeners should, should get out and see this year or try and hunt, what is it? Uh, uh, <laughs> That's a tricky one. I mean, there there are some very rare small plants, but some of the rare ones are not particularly showy. But if um, there is one tiny plant called mudwort, for instance, which, as its name suggests, likes very muddy areas, and that's got tiny little white plants, um, it's a fairly rare thing, but you've got to be really into your plants to go on and go and see that one. But if you wanted to see something that would inspire you, then I would have thought, you know, the early forget-me-not with its bright blue tiny flowers is a good introduction to, you know, how wonderful small plants can be. That was Peter Creed on the joy of small overlooked plants. Some of those tiny flowers might be found in hay meadows, which are incredibly important habitats for wildflowers. But they also require a bit of work, as the collection of plants found in them has come together as a result of centuries of humans and herbivores using the land. Neil Harnett works for the Cumbria Wildlife Trust and loved being involved in the restoration of some hay meadows in the county so much that he decided to have a go at creating one in his own garden. We had a chat about what hay meadows need. So Neil, you're accidentally restoring hay meadows. Just tell us how you've ended up accidentally doing this. Right. Well, um, I'm a birder really by trade. Uh, I love birds. I worked on the Golden Eagle project in Cumbria and that sort of thing. Um, and then when I started working for Cumbria Wildlife Trust, I was asked to fundraise and develop a project looking at the restoration of species rich hay meadows uh, in Cumbria because of the large declines we've seen. And so it was through that really raising money and then managing staff who botanists really that were doing this restoration that I came to love hay meadows. And then when I moved into a house that uh, allowed me to play a bit myself, I, um, I've been restoring a hay meadow in my own garden. And there's nothing quite like doing it yourself to um, appreciate, well, the difficulties of doing so, but also the joy when, when it works. So whereabouts are the hay meadows that you started work on? 
The major concentration of flower-rich meadows in Cumbria are around the Orton Fells, the Orton area. So that's where we focused our initial work. There are still meadows um, within the Lake District National Park as well. We have done some work in there, but it's largely faced around the Orton Fells. Um, with all, and there's a lot of beautiful verges in that area as well, which are remnants of the, the hay meadows that would have um, covered that whole area 100 years ago or so. And what happened? to the meadows that means they need restoring have they been neglected or have they been overdeveloped for agriculture it's really to do with improvements in agriculture post-war there was a, a, a lot of drive in order to improve productivity after the war, quite understandably so. And this was led um, by ICI, funnily enough. The chemical company came in and set up um, demonstration farms where they ploughed up the old um, species-rich meadows that existed, reseeded uh, them with um, ryegrass and other fast-growing species and put chemical fertilisers on them. And what that does is it gives large amounts of thick-growing uh, grasses that the farmers can cut once, twice, maybe three times a year, depending upon their location. So, uh, and, and I, in doing that, meant they got more hay and um, silage for their animals, and that kind of drove the the loss of these hay meadows. So, the only ones that have really survived are those farmers that resisted that kind of intensification that occurred post-war, which was driven as well by subsidies. Um, you know, farmers were paid to do this. Um, so that's why we've got very, very few left. 97% decline, I think the figure is, for, for hay meadows since the war. And does that, does that matter? I mean, maybe it's just a change in the way that our countryside looks. Hay meadows are, I suppose, a, a creation of, of man as well, aren't they? Uh, oh, uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, wh whether it matters, um, I, I guess, is, is partly down to your perspective. As, as a conservationist myself, obviously, hay meadows have a much greater biodiversity. Um, they're full of a wide variety of plants and flowers, which in turn support um, much greater numbers of pollinating insects. And pollinators are rising up the agenda now um, as we come to realise how many pollinators we're losing um, through it. So, yeah, I, th I think they really do matter um, economically because um, without our pollinators, um, we're going to struggle to produce food. Environmentally, because they do support much wider numbers of insect life, flower life, uh, and all the birds that will, that will live on that. But also, um, I think there's something beautiful about hay meadows. Um, I've, I've managed to drape over my own hay meadow a hammock, so I can sit almost at eye level with the hay meadow, and it's just absolutely gorgeous. And as part of our work at the Cumbria Wildlife Trust, we've um, tried to get people back into hay meadows, um, just to kind of experience the, the the sound of the insects and the, and the smell. I think there's a real beauty there. Um, so, yeah, I think I would argue that, yeah, they're very important. Well, what do you do to restore them? Well, um, there's, there's different methods um, of doing it, but the, the main enemy of your species-rich hay meadow is nutrient-rich soils. And that's the thing that I've kind of uh, learnt over time. So when we're trying to restore um, hay meadows with farmers, we'd like them to stop the input of chemical fertilisers and then get them to cut and remove, cut and remove. And slowly over time, you reduce the nutrients. And by reducing the nutrients, you stop the vigorous grasses from dominating and other flowers start coming 
coming in. Another way of doing it is by introducing parasites um, into the sward. Hay rattle um, is, is a parasite that feeds on the roots of these vigorous grasses and by doing so uh, enables space for for other flowers. Now I'm personally, I'm very impatient. So in my garden, um, I got rid of the nutrients on the lawn by literally soil stripping. Um, I got a, a turf stripper and cut off the top two inches, um, removed that. And I've been um, using that for compost now for our vegetable beds. And on that kind of the base of the soil that was left, I sowed seeds into that and very quickly you get a, a beautiful sward of fine grasses uh, and flowers. And how long does that take to develop? So you've done that in, in your garden. Uh, yeah. I did this when I was a, a teenager and I didn't take the top layer of turf off um, because I think my parents would have got pretty annoyed with me. Yeah, but no, I can it, understand it, that. <laughs> it never really took off, probably because I never really managed the grass and the nutrients. But how long are you talking, even if you've done it properly before you start seeing a lovely, you know, swathe of oxide daisies or ladies smock or whatever that you're really keen on seeing in whatever season well it, if you do it the slow way the cut and remove then i think studies have been done that shows it can take 10 to 12 years before you start getting um the, the sort of flower rich swords that we as conservationists would like to see as i said i'm far too impatient for that so um with soil stripping, it can work very quickly. Um, when I when I sowed the flowers, uh, I soil stripped in the uh, late autumn and I sowed in a, a mixture of fine grasses, um, wildflower um, meadow species, but also an annual mix. So that first summer, I had an a the annuals came through and dominated. So I had lots of poppies, corn cockles and all that, which was a beautiful show. So it's straight away in the first year, you're getting a beautiful show of flowers. In the second year, those flowers then tend to die away uh, and the perennials come in. And that's when the oxide daisies started coming in. So it, it can happen really quickly. It does take a bit of effort. It means putting you back into the spade or that. But if you're if you're able to do that, then you I think you can see results really quickly, which is really gratifying for me. <laughs> and, and it's much less effort than mowing the lawn every week, isn't it? I mean, you have to cut it. How often do you cut the meadow? Well, this uh, again, this this plays to my natural laziness. I mow the lawn probably up to April, early May, and then I mimic the, the, the hay meadow cycle by stopping mowing or what they would call shutting up the meadow. And then I just let it grow. And so and then I will probably cut it again. You, you can cut it um, depending on when you cut it is when different species will start dominating in your sward. So you can start playing about with this as well. I cut it quite late. So it will be after things like the melancholy thistle have, have flowered and um, betony and meadowsweet will have come in and flowered. And so I'll cut late autumn uh, and then I'll mow it a few times as well before winter sets in and then the grass kind of stops growing anyway so um, I don't actually have to mow it very often to be honest with you probably five six times over the course of a of a summer and that basically mimics grazing or hay collection in a traditional hay meadow 
that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah, in a traditional system, you would shut the meadow up um, in spring. And by that, I mean taking the, the stock out of it. And then you would let the grass grow. And then you would have your hay time. So you'd cut your hay for the stock. And after that, they, they put what they call aftermath grazing, which is when they put their stock back on uh, in late summer, early autumn. Um, and that would just keep the sward low again. So yeah, you're, you're basically just trying to mimic it. But as I say, you, you can play with the timing of the cut in order to try and benefit certain species. So if you cut it a bit earlier, um, you might favour things like the oxide daisy and wood cranes bill, um, whereas later cutting might favour melancholy thistle. And that's, that's another one of the joys for me is watching the change in species composi- composition. It's, it's not a static thing, a hay meadow. It won't be the same every year. It will move and it will change depending upon how you cut it. And that will change the character of the meadow. And you can play with it a bit yourself by plug planting. Um, so for instance, I, I haven't managed to get wood cranes bill to germinate from seed. So I'm growing those on in plug plants and trying to plug them into the meadow in order to to get them in my meadow. So it's a really joyous thing, actually, watching it change and develop. And have you seen any plants turn up in either your meadow at home or the meadows you've been working on that that weren't ones that you introduced, that have just pitched up either on the wind or through um, birds, bird droppings or, or whatever, that have really surprised you and you didn't expect to see that particular plant there? I've had a couple of invasive species <laughs> turn up, which I didn't particularly <laughs> like. There's been a few. Um, I'm just trying to um, rack my brains here for which ones they were, because I'm terrible with plant names. I'm a birder. So we've had the one that horses absolutely hate. That's turned up. Ragwort, thank you. That's come into my brain at the last minute. Ragwort's turned up and has come in. So that's probably the biggest one. I don't mind it as much. I tend to just let it kind of go a bit, really, in, in, in that sense, and, and see what does turn up Um, and we've had some annual weeds turn in as well but um, I just kind of let them get on with it really and uh, and see what turns up. So you let the meadow balance itself really rather than trying to interfere too much? I I think so Um, I mean if one species started to really dominate then I would probably intervene so if, if the way I was managing the meadow or the soil conditions or the microclimate of my garden started to mean that I only was getting one flower and that was dominating at the expense of others, then I would probably interfere and I would, I would go in and cut them out or dig them up. That hasn't happened yet. And my meadow has been running for about four years now. Um, and it's and it's still changing and evolving. But no, I mean, it is for me a, a, a garden gardening experience. And so I will go in and play with it. But I don't have to do very much at the moment. I just sit in my hammock and enjoy it, really. And finally, it's time for details of this week's challenge. And Kevin Widowson, one of my co-leaders for Wildflower Hour, is here to tell you what to look out for. Hello and welcome to the first of many family guides for the Wildflower Half Hour podcast. In this episode we will be looking at the Borogenaceae family. Um, This is the Borage family. In Britain and Ireland we have 19 genera within this family. Well-known ones include things like comfries, lungworts and most memorably the forget-me-nots. The Borage family has some universal features that help distinguish it from other families. There are a few exceptions to this, as is the way with plants, and we'll come onto those a little bit later. So, onto those features. Members of the Borogenaceae family have 
hairy, sometimes bristly stems. These are in alternate arrangement and that's really important to remember. So um, alternate arrangement is where one event happens per node. So it might be a leaf and it might be that one leaf happens at one node, we go up the stem and then we get another leaf happening at the next node. So this is alternate arrangement. Something that's more difficult to identify is that the inflorescence is a spiralled sign. So this is quite a technical term and hopefully I can explain that to you. Uh, this is where the uppermost flower opens first, with the ones below opening later and in a sequence. Um, this differs from something like a racine, where the um, lower flowers open first and we progress with flowers opening as we go up the inflorescence. Um, so what is a spiralled cyme? Well, you need to think of the shape of a fiddle neck. So what I'd like you to imagine is a flowering stem projecting vertically with a terminal flower. So obviously that means a, a flower at the end of this stem. Slightly underneath this flower is a second axis. This projects forwards at around 45 degrees to the original stem. This stem, this new stem, also has a terminal flower at the end. This pattern repeats with a determined number of axes all projecting at 45 degrees to the previous stem. Um, so what I'd like to imagine is that this creates an inflorescence resembling a scorpion's tail. The flowers here open in sequence um, with the um, initial axis flowering first and the latter axes flowering as we go on. Um, so this scorpion shape um, is referred to in the specific epithet of one of the most well-known genera of this family, the forget-me-nots. Um, in this case, we're talking about the water forget-me-not, or Myosotis scorpioides. Um, again, I'll talk about this a little bit later on in this, um, in this episode. Other family features in include that the flowers are actinomorphic. This means that the flowers have rotational symmetry, um, like uh, try to think of the wheel of a pirate ship. The flowers have five petals, and these are usually formed into a tube. The stamen also being five, and these are joined to the petals. Um, the flower also has five sepals. Interestingly, the ovary is four-lobed. This produces four nutlets on maturity. The style projects out of the middle of these ovary lobes. Now, this feature can be confused with members of the dead nettle family, which also has an ovary divided into four. But the dead nettle family all have opposite leaves. So this is where two events happen per node. So you'll have one leaf one side, one leaf the other side at the same node. Um, this is really the best way of separating the Boroginaceae family from the Lamiaceae family, the dead nettles. So I said I'd talk about the forget-me-nots, because um, this is the most well-known genera in the, in the family. Um, this genus has 10 species within it, not counting um, uh, subspecies. The most well-known being things like the water forget-me-not, uh, wood forget-me-not and field forget-me-not. Um, the latter two can be easily separated by their flower size and flower shape. In field forget-me-not, the flowers are generally less than five millimetres across and the flowers are cup-shaped, so they're slightly inversely domed. Um, in wood forget-me-not, 
the flowers are generally over five millimeters across and the flowers are flat so resembling a plate so that's just a little bit about the forget-me-nots there are many others within that within that genera as i mentioned so there are a couple of exceptions to these family features things like vipers bugloss actually has zygomorphic flowers this is where you have a single line of symmetry from the top to the bottom of the flower. So you could imagine it folding like a book. Um, this is where the lower lip on Vipus bugloss is actually slightly different to the other petals within the flowering tube. Um, one of the more rare plants in the family also has a bit of a difference from the rest of the group. Um, this is the oyster flower. This differs in that its leaves are not hairy. So as is always the way with plants, they don't always read the books and um, some of the members of the family can actually have different features to the rest of the group. So this is just a quick roundup of the Borage family and the features to look out for. So keep an eye out for more family guides in the future. Thanks very much. Thanks, Kevin. And all you need to do once you've found a member of this family is upload your photos using the hashtag Borage Challenge on Twitter or Instagram or in our Facebook group. That's all for this week, but don't forget to join in with Wildflower Hour this Sunday at 8pm and happy hunting. Thanks for listening.